economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Luke Graham, producer and graduate assistant for the Gorney Institute. With us, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gorney Institute and Wayne Angel Tree of Economics. We have Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gorney Professor of Economic Education and Research. And finally, the undergrad scholar, Jacob Cotto. All right, so into the new year and lots of fresh eyes and fresh ears out there, uh, but some of the same old stuff is out there as well. I was watching football where the Chiefs were uh, victorious and the Vikings got slaughtered. Uh, and then 60 Minutes was on afterwards. And I kind of paused it. The first thing was kind of interesting. And then there was on something on the environment. And I'm like, okay, I'll listen to this. And it was kind of the normal, uh, the world's ending type of stuff coming on. But then they interviewed this guy named Paul Ehrlich. And I'm like, is that the guy that Julian Simon had the bet with? So one of the things <clears throat> that I've covered in class in the past was how uh, this famous bet between an economist and a uh, biologist uh, was laid out in the 70s and where we thought we were running out of natural resources, running out of resources. And um, uh, Julian Simon's claim was that humanity finds solutions and ways and new discovery and entrepreneurship. And so we don't get these doomsday predictions that uh, have been proclaimed for for years. Well, here's Paul Ehrlich on 60 Minutes. He was pretty gray, and I don't know how old he is now, but uh, was uh, prophesizing his uh, claims. And I'm like, this is the same stuff he said before. I mean, I'm like, Peter is just going to get a kick out of this. And so then I come into the office, and Peter's tapping away at his computer, writing an article for fee on uh, the 60 Minutes thing. So we thought, well, looks like we found our podcast. Uh, topic for today. So, uh, Peter, take it away. Why don't you rehash what's going on with, with his claims and what economists' views are? Yeah. Listeners, let me give you a quote from Paul Ehrlich, very alarming. Uh, Ehrlich said, in 10 years, all important animal life in the sea will be extinct. Large areas of coastline will have to be evacuated because of the stench of dead fish. The problem, listeners, with that quote is that's a quote from Paul Ehrlich in 1970. Uh, Paul Ehrlich has been, for the last almost 60 years, literally, his first book, uh, uh, Alarmist book, came out in 1968. Paul Ehrlich has, for almost 60 years, been raising alarms uh, that the end is nigh due to environmental disaster. And the specific topic that Ehrlich uh, focuses on changes when one thing becomes obviously not true, he shifts to something else that's a little bit harder to show is not true. Uh, you know, he used to talk about people running out of food. Uh, that was kind of his big thing. In 1968, he wrote a book called The Population Bomb. And the argument of the book was that the human population is such that we are going to run out of food. Uh, and with this, a lot of bold predictions about, for example, England won't be a country in the year 2000 uh, because everyone will die of starvation. Uh, the government will collapse. 
Um, yeah, uh, uh, you can. It, it's almost too easy. It almost feels like pick, picking on uh, someone who uh, you know uh, is not quite intelligent enough to have an argument with because of all their wrong predictions. You can't fault him for his boldness of his. I was going to say at least the bold that he uh, put them in writing and put them out there. But funny how that doesn't seem to matter. Yeah, yeah, and, and so uh, you know, it would be one thing if Ehrlich were. Uh, you know, sometimes over predicting and sometimes under predicting uh, the nature of crises, you know, sometimes like people make random mistakes and they can make a mistake. But when someone always predicts that the end is nigh, you cease to be able to treat them like a serious scholar and you have to start treating them like uh, basically a doomsday prophet. Like this is a guy standing on a street corner with a sign uh, and he just happens to be on the street corner of like Stanford University or something like that. I'm not sure where. <laughs> uh but so Ehrlich's an ecologist. Let's put that straight to you. Because I, I don't want to give him the distinction of being a biologist. Uh, I, my understanding is that's a, a little bit more of a precise science. So he's, he's an ecologist uh, and he predicted for years and years that overpopulation was going to be a major problem. And Ehrlich admits to some of these errors, but he says that uh, and he even said this on Twitter the other day that he's basically been right about everything, <laughs> that he's wrong in certain occasions, but he's made no basic errors. But of course, always being wrong in one direction is the definition of something that indicates a basic error. <laughs> and here's the basic error. Paul Ehrlich sees people as no different than just like common animals. Yeah. And so as an ecologist, one thing that, you know, is actually like pretty reasonable is that, you know, you can have overpopulation of animal populations. And the way that you can observe this is sometimes there will be too many and resources will grow thin and they'll actually start to die off. You know, this is something that people have been noticing for years and years. You know, Thomas Malthus noticed it in the 1700s, you know, before we even had ecologists. So it's not really a really unique insight or anything like that, but it's true. Uh, but human beings are different than animal, animals. Human beings are smart. First off, they can curb, uh, you know, their reproduction more than animals can. Uh, people are too smart to just breed themselves to death, literally. Uh, that's one thing that we've observed factually. In fact, uh, human birth rates decrease uh, at, you know, or have been decreasing over the last few decades, uh, possibly in response to different environmental pressures, probably for other reasons, but uh, they, they can do that. They're not totally helpless and subject to their instincts. It's uh, very patriarchal to think of humans that way, uh, not, not patriarchal in like a man dominated way, but in a, a fatherly sense, like you think you know better than these, all these poor people in these countries who apparently can't manage their own reproduction, <laughs> but they can. That's one issue. Another issue is humans are smart enough to actually recreate their, their environments, and in fact, create their environments uh, in meaningful ways that animals cannot do in any parallel fashion. Sure, beavers can make dams or whatever, uh, but beavers can't change the temperature of the room that they're in, right? Uh, beavers are not able to build flood-resistant buildings that are, you know, multiple stories high uh, or change the lights that surrounds them. You know, these are all things that are unique to human beings. And, and is that different, do you think, than adapting? Um, so I'm thinking of, it's cold out, so we wear a coat. An animal can't do that. So we buy a coat, we manufacture, you know, a coat that's going to do it. I feel like that's even a little different than creating an environment, although maybe it is the same. I, I mean, I just wanted your thoughts on that. Yeah, fr from a from the perspective of someone who, like, our experiences are subjective by, by necessity. Well, like, the, the things that we experience are the things that we experience. Uh, it actually, to me, seems like we do create our environments when we, for example, bring a water bottle with us. What we're really doing is we're creating a geographic space that has water in a place that it didn't before. And so in any meaningful sense, we are creating our environments. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, 
humans create uh, all sorts of things out of their environment. So why is oil not just this black liquid that is like somewhat obnoxious if you were to like step on it uh, on a, you know, a farm in a plane, you know, uh, we have the Beverly Hillbillies, you shoot at the ground and oil pops up. Why don't humans just say, oh, that's obnoxious. I've got a, this black stuff all over my lands now. Uh, it's because we're smart enough to be able to convert that oil into things like food and energy of oh, directly energy, but indirectly food and transportation and heats. Uh, this is something that other creatures can't do. And because humans can do it, it makes us fundamentally different than, you know, these animal populations that Paul Ehrlich is so used to studying. Yeah. And this basic failure to recognize that difference is at the root of all of his incorrect predictions, uh, every single one of them. And so this is a basic error uh, it's an error that's been told to him. Uh, Ross brought up Julian Simon. Uh, Simon was an economist who uh, had most of his intellectual career around the same time as Ehrlich. Unfortunately, uh, passed away very early, uh, early 60s, I think he was when he passed away. Um, but Simon uh, wrote at a time where it was unfashionable to say that human population is good. Uh, and basically, over the course of the last 50 years, Simon's points have been proven right that human innovation, human adaptation are, is actually such that increasing population is correlated with increases in wealth, increases in life expect expectancy, believe it or not, better environments, uh, as we see in first world countries today. Um, as you get more people and more developments, people actually have a larger demand for things like clean air and clean water and all that. So actually humans improve the environment as population grows. Uh, so not only is Ehrlich uh, missing something, he, because he's missing something, he actually comes to the exact opposite of the correct conclusion. Yeah. And I, <clears throat> I, I don't, I'm not familiar with exactly their models, but I know enough about economic models that I, I assume it's the same. They, they take all of the historical stuff and they say, here's where we're at today. Here's the stock of resources we have. And at this rate, there's no way that if population grows at this X amount and resources have been growing at this amount, it's not sustainable. And that's really the fault in terms of the, the forecasting. Yeah, what's wrong with their predictions is that what created the historical path we're on has been innovation and other things. And so the prosperity or the, the path that we're on from the history standpoint was actually based off of innovation that's missing from their model. So yeah. of how that'll continue into the future. Yes, and, and it's actually even a little bit worse than that. You're absolutely right. These You can think of this as like engineering uh, estimates of things, uh, forecasts, but it's actually even worse than this uh, because how a lot of these uh, you know different data sets work is like Russ said, they go out and measure like the existing known supply of something, not even the supply, the known supply of something. For example, oil. When does it become necessary for people to search for supplies of oil? When it's worth their while to do it. Yeah, when would it be worth your while to search for new oil? Price is high. There's little of it right Price now. Price is high and part of the reason there yeah, people are price is high, there's little of it right now. Yeah. And so when you start to run out of your known reserves of oil, people, people search for new or reserves of oil. Or right. substitutes. Or, or, or substitutes, that's yeah. right. Uh, but the point is, our estimates of the existing stock of any natural resource are actually based on how much resources we expect to use in the near future. And so there's this gigantic, in, academic, in academia, we would call this an endogeneity problem uh, with the measurements themselves. In other words, you should never expect 
there to be a correct forecast about the amount of natural resources because we don't have an incentive to produce a correct forecast. We only have an incentive to produce something like an immediate um, knowledge of what we have. And so you can look back, uh, you know, Julian Simon wrote a book called The Ultimate Resource 2. In here, he has a chapter on oil. And you can actually see every 30, 20, 30 years, you have some government agency claiming we're at peak oil ever since the early 1900s, which means like there's going to be less of it. You know, in the 70s, they claimed that there was something like 20 billion barrels left. We used that much oil in like four years now. <laughs> uh, and so uh, these estimates always end up failing. Now, one of the responses to this might be, okay, okay, uh, fine, natural resources, Paul Ehrlich was wrong about food, and he's wrong about oil, and he's wrong about copper, and he's wrong about everything else. But the 60 Minutes interview wasn't about natural resources, and I'm going to concede that somewhat. It's about, like, animals and extinction, yeah. right? Yeah, mass and, extinction. And so what about this problem of mass extinction? Well, first, uh, it's not clear that there is any problem. We're going to start with that. Uh, a lot of the data for these extinction projections are even worse than the engineering forecast of like oil reserves. They're based on things like uh, what are called like size area data points. And the way these things work is they, scientists will like measure, you know, a certain size of land and they'll estimate how many species are on that size of land. And then they'll say, well, if you cut 10% of the land off, then 10% of the species in there are gonna die. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is, isn't actually how things work. If you like knock a tree down, the bird in it doesn't just like fall over and like <laughs> die. Uh, animals adapt uh, actually just like humans do uh, and move. And it turns out, uh, if you look at actual extinction numbers, extinction numbers are very low. So it, it was in the 1970s, there was a survey of biologists, biologists, uh, not even ecologists. And at the time, biologists said something like within the next 30 years, about 6 million species are going to go extinct. Uh, so let, let's, you know, look at the actual numbers. 6 million are going to go extinct. Surely we can point to some. How many species have gone extinct since the beginning of human history that we have documentation on? It's something like a maximum of 2,000 that we know about, a maximum of 2,000. Now, the response is by a lot of these people and would be by maybe some listeners, well, it's hard to know for sure if some things are extinct. We don't even know all the different types of organisms out there, let alone how many go extinct. But the problem is then you're making an unfalsifiable right, claim. Right, If a tree uh, falls in the woods, does it really make a yeah, it's, thing? It's, it's by, if you're saying there's no way for us to know whether we're wrong about this, then you've made an unscientific claim. Science by its very nature has to have an observable implication that you could show to be incorrect uh, and you falsify the theory with. In other words, your theory has to come with some way to prove it, your, prove it wrong. So if you say, hey, I wrote this like model that predicts what species loss is gonna be. And then I ran the model with variables and the model that I made to predict species loss shows that there's gonna be species loss. Amazing, uh, let's go out and test it. Oh, we can't test it because it's too hard to count. Okay, so we actually don't know anything. Uh, and there's peer reviewed publications in nature, for example, uh, one very bold one goes by the title of something like size area estimates always over predicts the, uh, you know, extinction of species or something like that is the, the title of the paper. And nature is a very good, uh, by the way, uh, environmental journal. And so the point is, these estimates on species uh, extinction are really, really bad. So we, there's actually no evidence, as far as I can find, that there is an increase in the rate of extinction of animals. In fact, 
we actually can somewhat measure biodiversity over time. And over the last 500 years, I think even longer, biodiversity has been increasing at a rate greater than extinctions have been increasing. So new organisms are developing and being found that didn't exist before at a rate faster than we're losing organisms. And listeners, uh, you know, Peter is an economist, but he studied a lot of this stuff. We are willing to be challenged. Please email us. Uh, we'd love, we'd, we'd have you on as a guest. Um, th these are just fun topics for us to think about. Um, you've heard our our side of things and, and Peter's uh, studies that he's done on it. So please come back to us, uh, tell uh, forward this podcast on to your ecologist, biologist friends and, and see what they say. And, and we'll be happy to have them on as guests and, and discuss these things. That's what we're all about is open dialogue. So that'd be fun. Well, this looks like a good spot for a break. And when we come back, I think this always brings up for me. Uh, from a faith perspective, stewardship of resources, and, and uh, we'll try to weave in some of that as we uh, continue to investigate this idea of mass extinction and resource use. We'll be back in just a bit. If you're a high school student interested in earning some college credit, we have an online microeconomics class for motivated high school students seeking to earn early college credit. It's affordable, flexible, and layered with support. Our new online microeconomics course is optimized for dual credit and will increase your students' college readiness. Contact Peter or Justin or Russ today. The Gordy Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing. Please support our many programs that we have here at the Gordy Institute. I just got back from Guatemala with some college students and we distributed coloring books that had highlighted uh, interesting aspects of economic freedom for not only the kids, but for their parents. Uh, we also have PPE League starting up and some high school programs. If you want to continue to support the spread of good economics across our nation. Please help support the Gorton Institute. All right, so we're back. And uh, I wanted to start off with the faith thing a little bit. Um, I, I always just get into stewardship. And as a Missouri Senate Lutheran, um, the idea of calling and vocation uh, is kind of one of our, our, our uh, top things on um how we deal with resources, and I think this is this is one of those areas. Um, the, the other thing is with helping the poor, and so um, as we start to be concerned with resource use and start to put in restrictions on living and um, uh, environmental conditions, all of that tends to increase costs of of things, and so. When we do that, and it especially, I think, um, I don't know this with certainty, but I'm pretty sure uh, it really uh, affects our food prices because a, a lot of the environmental uh, aspects with energy, of course, food and gas are right up there at the top. And so when those go up a little bit because of new regulations, that's going to disproportionately hurt the poor. And so uh, Jesus tells us the, the poor will always be among us, which to me tells us you, you're always going to have a calling to, to help the poor. And so for me as an economist, this kind of feeds into that, that um, um, I, I don't want to see regu unnecessary regulations, let's just put it that way, um, go into place because of, number one, their negative impact on the poor, disproportionately hurting the poor. Uh, after just getting back here from Guatemala, um, my wife, uh, does some work with some families to help 
them sell their products here in the United States and, and works with them directly on providing education to their kids. And uh, the, where they're living and how they're living is, is very minimal. Um, and so when food prices go up and, and a big bag of uh, corn to make tortillas uh, increases from, let's say, 10 American dollars to 11 American dollars, that's a big thing for them. And so the same thing goes on here in the United States. And so I think we have to be extra cautious not to be willy-nilly passing re regulations that aren't supported by solid evidence. And that's part of what this uh, podcast is all about, is, is challenging the evidence that these ecologists, biologists are, are using and forecasting for many years down the road aren't taking into account the human being. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. The absolutely. human being, the way we characterize it, they're taking the human being in as as some sort of animal resource using thing without the brain being a uh, part of that package. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the just, you know, a lot of times when you get into issues like this, people will be very reluctant to accept the failure of experts. Uh, but it, it should be noted that uh, the experts already did fail, right? This already happened. So that's an important piece of uh, evidence in this argument is that in the 1970s, ecologists, specifically Paul Ehrlich, but a lot of famous uh, high-level academic ecologists were saying that the world was going to be in serious trouble. Human beings were going to die at serious rates. And this did trickle into government. Jimmy yes. Carter was the one that uh, had made speeches. This was before my time. I was too little, but I remember hearing some of, I think part of what uh, hurt Jimmy Carter ultimately was saying, well, this is a new a new thing, a new norm that we're going to have to restrict our use of energy and maybe turn yeah. off power during the well. Well, times. we'll we'll come back into it because there's a something I want to hit on a little bit later that relates to this. But this has actually gone back even to the Nixon administration. Uh, Nixon uh, and uh, you know successors uh, Johnson um, were very high into this idea that we need to lower populations. Um, but uh, kind of uh, on this idea, you know, the Christian also has the responsibility of stewardship, right? We have to use the natural world in a, a way that makes it uh, better. We're not to destroy the earth, we're to steward it. And, uh, you know, the, this maybe is like a concern to some Christians, but uh, really the solution here actually is not coer these coercive government problems, as Russ brought up. You know, that doesn't actually, you know, make anything better. It doesn't make things worse, just like Russ said. Uh, the solution actually that exists out there is the protection of private property. This is the best solution we have for all sorts of environmental issues, including resource availability, also into animal extinctions. So you might think something like, well, we can make more resources, but people aren't ever going to protect animals. Let me ask a basic question. What animal do you think is slaughtered in the you know, highest proportions in our society by humans? Cows. Yeah, probably cows and chickens, right? These are like the two. Yeah. Uh, does anybody worry about the population of cows? No, they're, no. they're going to be here. Yeah, they're, they're going to be here for, forever, right? Uh, people are not worried about the population of cows. In fact, the biggest threat to uh, the, the cow population is probably 3D printed meat. Uh, there is yeah. a huge incentive by ranchers to keep cow populations alive into the future because their entire business depends on them. The same principle applies with, you know, exotic animals, like, for example, rhinos. Uh, there is a, an organization, I forget the, what the acronym stands for, something like Private Environmental Resource and something like that, maybe Senator, uh, but it's called PERC, P-E-R-C. And PERC uh, has run several studies, one study on uh, and report on the white rhino. 
So around the year 1900, there were 20 white rhinos around approximately uh, known in the world. They exist on one like little wildlife preserve. And that population steadily increased uh, up until around the early 90s, where it really kind of grew uh, in a massive way. Because in the 1990s, South Africa, the government where most white rhinos exist, or you know, the, you know, the country, uh, in where most white rhinos exist, their government passed rules uh, allowing for the private ownership and sale of white rhinos. Today, post this uh, change, there are now around 20,000 white rhinos uh, that exist. So we're nowhere near that extinction point that we were with 20. Uh, now when it's legal to breed rhinos and basically sell them to people to kill them. Because if you're selling a rhino to someone for it to be killed, that gives you an incentive to make sure you have more rhinos in the future. If you're not allowed to do that, uh, the only way people could profit off rhinos is by killing them illegally, basically finding one that's not owned and killing it and selling the stuff. Uh, because you're not allowed to breed them together and you know sell the babies or sell them out for poaching, no one has an incentive to pre preserve them the only, or protect them. The only incentive that's left is to just kill them and take the resources. That doesn't mean it's a good thing or that I'm advocating for it. It's just what the incentives cause. Uh, the reason I don't go when I'm hungry, you know, kill a cow across the street and cook it is because I know the farmer's going to protect that cow, right? There's a, you know, there's a barbed wire fence, and I'm sure if one of the cows goes missing or several of the cows go missing, the farmer's going to start sitting in the field with a gun. It's not a smart strategy. If no one owned cows and there was a cow across the street, absolutely, I'm calling a friend who has a gun and saying, hey, let's kill this and, you know, harvest the, you know, hundreds of pounds of meat and save me some grocery budget. I would absolutely do that. Uh, and so the, the point of this is that private property actually does do the best job of aligning resources such that things are conserved into the future. Yeah. Uh, on the 60 Minutes episode, there was a gentleman in Latin America, I can't remember what country it was, but I think it was maybe even near Guatemala um, that was concerned about the mass extinction stuff and whatnot, and really had a, a, a free market response to or a market solution to trying to address the problem as he perceived it. So, I mean, even for the ardent uh, environmentalists, there are market responses that, that can be used to try to address the problem as they see it. And so what it was is they had a area of land. Uh, I don't remember how uh, large it was, but let's just say it's a thousand acres or something. And within this thousand acres, uh, they were collecting donations to uh, pay the farmers not to harvest the land. So the, in this case, they were taking trees and taking away some of the habitat of species that they were concerned about. And so he had a functioning model of paying the farmers not to harvest land. And so it turned out to be a $1,000 per year. I think this was a thousand American dollars per year uh, for them not to harvest the land the way they were. And that was enough to do it. And so the program had you know, whatever it was, two point some million dollars, and they would raise that through private funds and pay the farmers not to farm the land. And so that, that's a market solution. There doesn't uh, have to be a, a government involved in that particular set of circumstances at all, where you've just got somebody willing to pay these farmers to not do something rather than to do something. And listeners, this is another instance where Ehrlich and his intellectual fellow travelers get things exactly the opposite of what's correct. Ehrlich's famous for peddling uh, an equation called the IPAT equation, uh, which basically is saying that our effect on the environment is going to be a function of our population, 
our affluence and our technology. Mm -hmm. And at population and affluence are both variables which hurt the environment <laughs> in this equation, because the thought is if you're rich, you're gonna be using a lot of resources. But notice in Russ's example, no poor country would, would it ever make sense. In other words, a country with low affluence, it would never make sense to pay someone not to use a resource to produce uh, food. That would be an insane proposition for a group of hungry people to tell them, hey, let's pay this farmer not to make you food. It would never fly in, a, in a, a poor country. The only time in which it makes sense for human beings to prioritize things like the environment, clean air, clean water is when they're able to make, meet their basic needs pretty easily. Only affluence uh, countries, or at least semi-affluent, not uh, you know totally starved populations of people are willing to spend resources on projects like this. And again, you can think that's good or bad, but it, it does happen to be a matter of fact. And I think it, it's it's certainly not bad that people prioritize feeding their kids uh, over clean air or something like that. Both are good, but if we have to choose between one, it seems to me obvious what the better one is. But the point is, you know, we, we see this empirical regulate, regularity all over the place. It's called the Kuznets curve after an economist, Simon Kuznets. What the Kuznets curve shows is that societies with absolutely no wealth are pretty environmentally clean because they can't affect the environment anyway because they're too poor to do that. And societies that are very wealthy are very clean because people demand a clean environment in very wealthy societies. And in the middle, these sort of developing countries, right now these, this would be like India would be the prime example. These are the countries that are the most uh, you know, predisposed to pollute. And the reason they're polluting is they're developing to the place where they can uh, afford to have clean air once again. And so the United States used to be where India and England, for example, used to be where India is today. We used to be heavily polluting in order to grow richer and, you know, have the luxury of a clean environment. So another problem with, uh, you know, the this sort of like Ehrlich way of thinking is that if we impose these cleanliness standards, as Russ mentioned earlier, on the poorest of the population, you actually don't give people a chance to move along the Kuznets curve to be rich and clean. Mm -hmm. uh, instead, Paul Ehrlich and fellow travelers are trying to force everyone to stay poor and clean. Yeah. Uh, but of course, the, the better of the worlds is, is rich and clean. And, and what's maybe a little counter to the logic is um, I think some people claim that, well, now we're in a position where we have rich countries like the United States that are keeping poor countries poor because we're having all of our dirty jobs done there so that we can buy their products cheap. And what's missing out of that is the interrelatedness of global trade and those products. So as we start to buy, let's just say at some point in time, those products that are, they're polluting and are dirty products, for lack of a better word, in that country, uh, we are actually uh, building wealth for them too through that trade. And so slowly but surely, they'll start to have prosperity and want the same things we want that uh, a cleaner environment or right. otherwise, and they'll start to just clean up like like we have. Yeah. Yeah. Again, remember, listeners, if you're choosing between a cleaner environment and feeding your kids, you're going to pick probably feeding your kids. But if you're choosing between a clean environment and, you know, burning coal, uh, you know, for an extra, I don't know, barbecue or something like that, that's when it starts to make more sense for people to say to themselves, eh, I kind of don't want the smoke flying into my house and making my things all dirty. For example, I like campfires. I have a yard where I can have a campfire, but I limit that because I don't want to get my clothes all smoky sometimes, right? That's how much wealth we have in the United States that that becomes the relevant trade-off. And that's what you want. Because if I have to make the fire to cook my kids' food, I'm making the fire. If I'm rich enough that I'm just making a fire for fun, sometimes I'm not going to. And that, that's that's a good thing. 
Yeah. Now, the kind of the last thing that I, I wanted to talk about in the podcast is yeah, one of the reasons I get very passionate about this and I'm very strong with my words against Ehrlich is because uh, his ideas on this have consequences yeah. uh, and they have serious consequences. In his original 1968 population bomb, Paul Ehrlich explicitly says uh, that we should consider coercive solutions if voluntary solutions don't work for controlling human population. Really? Yes. Uh, and again, that's 1968. Think of what else is happening in the 60s and 70s. Uh, China in the 70s adopts their one-child policy. Yeah. In the 60s, it's not fully reported on and known by the rest of the world, but India is undergoing a, a massive uh, sterilization campaign, one of the largest in history. Uh, tens of thousands of people sterilized by the Indian government over this time. Uh, and prior to this, uh, I believe it was Lyndon Johnson. I apologize to the, the ghost of Lyndon Johnson if I'm wrong here uh, <laughs> off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. Uh, Lyndon Johnson is quoted as saying, uh, that he's not interested in giving food aid to countries who can't control their population pro problem. Uh, and Johnson was very heavily influenced by a report out of the Nixon administration. Uh, and the Nixon administration was highly influenced by an advertising expert named Hugh Moore, who wrote a pamphlet called The Population Bomb, a pamphlet which the title of which was adopted by Ehrlich for his book, The Population Bomb. So these ideas uh, that, you know, people are necessarily this bad thing that are going to cause future harm. These ideas translate into policies which uh, try to get rid of people. And that's the, the simplest way to put it, Yeah, is that even though it's not like uh, China cited Paul Ehrlich uh, with their one-child policy, uh, the creator of the one-child policy or the architect of the one-child policy actually did cite a group called the Club of Rome, uh, which was a group that Paul Ehrlich has defended. Uh, and the Club of Rome wrote a piece called Limits to Growth, which talked about the same sort of topic. Population is going to kill us all. We're going to run out of food and all this stuff, you know, the usual stuff out of this, this group. And so these policy, these uh, wrong comments and, and these failed predictions have real consequences. And the real consequences are gross human rights violations for thousands of people in history. Some of the worst human rights violations of the latter half of the 20th century, really. Yeah. Um, and it's not just like the past. You might say, oh, 70s, that's a long time ago. Uh, well, first off, the United Nations gave an award to India and China in the 70s for what they did. Uh, so that's pretty terrible. Uh, but secondly, they really yes, yeah, they, they received the first United Nations Fund for pa Population Activities Award, uh, <laughs> India and China. In fact, it was known enough that this was going on that an economist, oh, I forget his name. It's a shame I'm forgetting it because he's a hero, basically. But he's a Chicago economist who was on the board that selected the winners and he resigned from the board and wrote a public letter saying that he couldn't be party to giving an award to these coercive programs. Wow. So it was known enough that the United Nations was supporting governments who were forcibly aborting and sterilizing. Uh, but it's also not ancient history. Uh, this was happening as recently. It could still be happening today and we don't know, but it's, it was happening as recently as 1998 in Peru. Uh, we had coercive sterilization programs that uh, it, between 1994 and 1999, something like 200,000 people were sterilized in Peru. Now, some of these were probably voluntary, uh, but we have a lot of documentation and there have been successful lawsuits and admissions from the Peruvian governments. Also, um, claims by the Peruvian government that USAID, uh, the United States uh, Agency for International Development, uh, was a party of this and, and was encouraging this. Um, they've admitted that there were a lot of coercive sterilizations or sterilizations that happened without the consent of the women, women who couldn't read and things like this, or women who went in for minor procedures and ended up being sterilized against their will. 
And so these are not minor, uh, you know, little Paul Ehrlich is making, oh, the end is nine, no big deal. And we can kind of laugh about it like some of the people who, you know, do the math from the Bible and they say that the world's going to end in five years and it doesn't happen. Like we can make fun of those people uh, because very few people take them seriously. But when your research program, uh, your biggest research program has happens at the exact same time as coercive policies inspired by uh, at least the topic of your research program, if not you directly, uh, this is when you're in the territory of it's time to be very aggressive in responding to this sort of thinking because it's wrong and its results are evil. And, and there's not really any two ways about it. Yeah. All right. Well, well put. I, I think uh, to sum things up, you know, people are not the problem. People are the solution. And That's so right. too often in history, as Peter just said, the 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 problem seems to be that people think we just need to less people. And in that 60 minutes, I, I was uh, kind of ashamed, just shocked to hear him say, well, we we determined our model that the human population at three and a half billion was sustainable for the long run. And here we are today at eight billion. And it was just right again, pointing out what Peter just said, that that people are the problem. And it's just it's just not true. I think there's plenty of evidence out there to say otherwise. Uh, the Gorton Institute, of course, is um, focused on the institutions that these people operate in. And so as Peter highlighted earlier, property rights being right up at the top. Uh, if you don't have proper court system and police system. So after just coming from Guatemala, that's one of the things that plagues them the most is um, you just don't have the way, the pathway for people to uh, do the things that they want to do in a fruitful way that brings prosperity. And, and so that's why our focus is on institutions and how that has impacted the world and how we can hopefully help make the world a little bit better place. Well, this has been a production of the Gorton Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like to thank you all for listening. Five-star rating helps other people find us. Uh, please forward this along to your friends and family that might like to listen, and even those that might like to be challenged on their views of mass extinction and world population. Uh, and again, our email boxes are open. Please bring them on. We'd love to have some episodes, maybe even a, a special guest on related to this topic. Listen, listeners, unless you're one of these people who thinks that people are, are bad, in which case I encourage you to stop using electronics of all forms, electricity, <laughs> as soon as possible uh, to be consistent with your own worldview. <laughs> all right. With that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks. <laughs>